Welcome to TheOpenWord.org, featuring the teaching ministries of Alan Schaefer. Currently, Alan is serving as an adjunct professor of theology at Moody Bible Institute, as well as leading almost weekly classes with his local church. With over 3,000 hours of recording since 1988, TheOpenWord.org contains theological studies, biblical surveys, homemade videos, and even small glimpses into Alan's personal life. We invite you to a source for verse-by-verse exposition of nearly the entire Holy Bible at TheOpenWord.org. Father, thanks for this day and for being with us and for loving us and for caring about us and for granting us this opportunity to be here to study tonight. I pray that you'd open our hearts to this great book. This book is one that I love very much and there's so much in here. And help us to guide our help us as we discuss this book, guide our discussions, and thank you for this time in Christ's name. Amen. First Timothy. We're now hitting the pastoral epistles. Pastoral epistles consist of 1st, 2nd Timothy and Titus. And they're pastoral because unlike most of Paul's letters, what's unique about these? Huh? Individuals. Every one of Paul's other letters were written to churches. Or in the sense of in the case of the church or Galatians, probably a whole series of churches, but this particular book here, or these two books, were written to individuals, Timothy and Titus, all right? And they're very personal in nature, and also there's another unique thing about them in that they were written very close to the end of Paul's life. They were the last three books that we know of that he wrote, and they were written in the order of 1 Timothy, Titus, and then 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy was the last book that Paul wrote. And it was one probably shortly before his death at the hands of Nero in about AD 65, somewhere around in there. Um, they were written to two individuals, Timothy and Titus, which were called, or which Paul called, his true sons in the faith. And that's a very important thing. Because what it means is at the end of Paul's long life in the ministry and all of the things he did, how many people did he have that he could call his true sons in the faith. Two of them. That's it. You know, it's, it's been my life. You know, I've, I've been a Christian now. See, I was saved when I was about eight years old, and I'm 46 now. I was 46 as of Saturday. Yeah. So, um, yeah. And um, so that means, let's see, do the math. That's 38 years or something like that. I've seen them come and go. I've seen them come in the front door of the church. You know, they're here for a while. You think they're the next greatest thing. And the next thing you know, they're off worshiping Buddha or something. You've seen them come and you've seen them go. And I know it's been, in my own life, I've had the, um, the sad um, experiences of having some close friends that come in. And, you know, they're like one of those, uh, one of those comments. You know, they come in and they get close for a little while. The next, you know, they're shooting back off near Pluto somewhere, you know. And uh, I've had them come into my life, and, you know, they, they seem to be, hey, these are, this is great, this is wonderful, these guys are really on fire for the Lord. And the next, you know, they're out Pluto somewhere, you know, they're out somewhere else. 
And it gets kind of sad because you see them come in, you see them go out, and especially if you put a lot of time and effort into them. Um, I remember John MacArthur telling the story of a man that he met every, every Tuesday or something at 6 o'clock in the morning. Anybody who meets at 6 o'clock is nuts in the first place, all right? But 6 o'clock in the morning, they would meet, and he would disciple this guy. At the end of two years, the guy walked away from his wife and became a Buddhist. And, he's, and you know, John says, you know, what'd I do? You know, I spent all this time in this guy, and he's off now as he's a Buddhist. So maybe that explains a little bit in 2 Timothy where Paul says, commit yourself to faithful men. It's hard to find a faithful man. You know, there's a lot of people that want, want to hang around and, you know, maybe get discipled, but are they faithful people? Are you spending a lot of energy and effort on somebody that's going to fizzle and pop and never get anywhere at all? And that, that was Paul's sad lot. He had two that turned out well, Timothy and Titus. Were there any others that turned out well that, that we know of with Paul? Luke? Who else? Barnabas and Silas? What about some losers? Hmm? Well, he didn't turn out to be a total loser. You know. He's actually mentioned here in 2 Timothy. Remember he forsook Paul having loved this present world? Who was it? Huh? Starts with a D. Starts with a D. Um, Demas. Now it's interesting because Demas appears twice in the Bible. He appears in the book of Colossians, and there he is held in high esteem. And in 2 Timothy, he is seen as a defector. Okay? Having loved this present world, Demas left Paul. All right? It was Paul's sad life to see a lot of people swoop in and swoop out. How about Jesus Christ? How many did he have when it was all said and done? How many did he have? Eleven. He had eleven. How many, how many people thronged and followed him all over Palestine? Thousands. And when it's all done, he had eleven of them. Sort of a sad con So the point is, folks, you know, if you don't have a lot of faithful people, when it's all done, join the, join the ranks of Paul and Jesus. It's not your fault. It's the way it is. But Paul did have these two true sons in the faith. And he wrote these books to them to encourage them in their ministry. One of the things that is happening is Paul knows that he is ending the, the or he's nearing the end of his ministry. So if you're nearing the end of the ministry, what do you want to do? Pass it on. Find somebody who won't drop the baton halfway around the backstretch, right? You want to find someone who's going to take over and pick up where you left off. And think about this. Timothy was the one that Paul gave the baton to, to carry. So what kind of person was Timothy? Was he a wuss? 
Was he a loser? No. He was something, but if Paul, what kind of person is Paul? Psychologically, Seth, what kind of person is Paul? Loyal. He's loyal. Pardon? Enduring. Enduring. What kind of temperament is he? Type A or B? Double A, right? I mean, AA, you know? I mean, he. You, you, you know, if we want to talk to him, you got to run to keep up with him, all right? Just ramming through everything. I mean, he was single-minded, and he was like a bull, and he was just going to go boom, boom. I mean, he, he couldn't slow him down. He couldn't stop him. Very hard-headed. He's probably a... I probably wouldn't have got along with him. I probably want to slap him once in a while just because he'd get, he get on my nerves. I mean, you look at... It's, it, he, it's because of his temperament, right? He was just a very... You know, a very single-purposed kind of individual, you know, and he just, he was focused on doing something. And he didn't have time to deal with mama's boy wants the ball and go home to mom. I don't have time to deal with Mark. Send him back to mom. Get somebody that's going to, you know, let's, we got to go. We got something to do. I can't deal with this guy crying, you know. Somebody else give him the di bottle and diaper. You know, that was his mentality, you know. He just wanted to go. So if Paul thought highly of you, what did that mean? You were special. You had to be somebody special. Paul was not one that would go around just to hand out a compliment for the sake of handing out a compliment. If he complimented you, that meant something. This is the man that Paul chose. Timothy's all over the New Testament. He was with Paul in First, Second Thessalonians, right? With him writing the book. In Philippians, Paul tells the Philippian believers he'll send... Timothy, in fact, he says, sending Timothy is as good as me showing up in person. You want to know what I think? I'll send Timothy. He'll take care of things for me. I mean, the, the, Paul, Paul had the utmost faith and trust in this Timothy. And to the point that Paul says, if Timothy says it, I said it. That was the kind of Tim person this man was. And so what Paul does is Paul's going to write Timothy this letter. And 1 Timothy, you can go and read all the background on the, on the web. I won't do that or read it in the book. But basically, Timothy was left in Ephesus to set some things in order, one of the churches. How long did Paul minister in Ephesus? Nope. Three years. What was the second longest ministry? 18 months. Corinthians. Corinth. All right. Corinth was second longest, 18. Three years in, in, in Ephesus. All right. And uh, Paul left Timothy there to set in order some things that were lacking in the church. All right. And evidently what happened is as Timothy was going about his business, he was getting some flack from the people in the church, some of the big shots. And evidently, since he was a little younger than they, they wanted to look down on his youth a little bit and sort of think, you know, who is this youngster in here telling us what to do? So Paul writes him this book, and this purpose is basically twofold. Number one, Timothy, you know, keep at it. You're doing all right. And secondly, for Timothy to give to these guys or give him trouble, say, this is what Paul said, shut up. All right. 
that was really the twofold purpose of this book. It was a it was a book that was to help Timothy, and it was to help him set in order the things in the church. So a lot of this book is centered around life in the church, the collective assembly. In fact, the the key verse many say of First Timothy is First Timothy chapter three. Verse 15, but if I am delayed, I write so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. I'm writing this so you may know how to conduct yourself in the house of God. That's why I wrote this book, to help you set these things in order, to help you shape these people up and get them doing the right thing in the church. So he writes Timothy this book. When was this book written? It was written after Acts. These are post-Acts books. Acts ends with Paul in prison in Rome. He was released after a little time there, did some ministry, and then he was imprisoned again, during which time he was martyred. So in between those times is when Paul wrote this particular book. Evidently, he was still free, because he talks about, if I am delayed, you may know how to do this. So evidently, Paul could still travel. He still had freedom of movement. So Paul wrote this book back to Timothy to encourage him in his ministry, encourage him in the work. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the commandment of God our Savior and the Lord Jesus Christ our hope, to Timothy, a true son in the faith. Note the word true son. There are sons, and then there are true sons. And there are two men that were called Paul's true sons in the faith. Timothy and Titus. Those were it. Paul had a lot of sons, but true, two true sons in the faith. Grace, mercy, and peace from God our Father and Jesus Christ our Lord. Notice the thing here, Paul was a, an apostle by the commandment of God our Savior. Paul did not take an aptitude test, and he scored high on the apostleship area. That's not why he was in the Why was Paul in the ministry? Okay, you just, you just answered the question correctly that a room full of pastors missed. When some guy got up, some psychology type guy got up and told a whole room full of pastors that the reason Paul was in the ministry is he had a deep psychological need to help people. Okay. And all of the pastors shook their heads in unison like little rubber duckies of course, yes, whatever you say, you know. And it's like, no, Paul was not in the ministry to meet some deep psycho. What was he going to do? He's going to go kill a few, right? Now, that doesn't sound like a deep psychological need to help people. He was going to go kill them, all right? That's the opposite of, you know, there's the help people kind of psychological profile and the kill people kind of profile. And those, are the, those aren't the same, all right? He was not out to help people. He's out to kill them. And he was called, not by his will, but God's will. This was not a vocation that Paul chose. And Paul never forgot that. He never forgot the fact that he was called by God. Paul didn't call God. Paul didn't show up. God called Paul. And God had to do it because no other Christian could get close enough to tell him anything. 
And he never forgot that. You're going to see through this book that he keeps coming back to this. this, this he, he's almost dumbfounded. Paul is essentially dumbfounded, awed, and shocked that of all the people on the planet, God would choose him to be the apostle. He couldn't get over that. Verse 3, as I urged you when I went into Macedonia. Macedonia, quick, churches, Macedonia. What are the churches? Thessalonica. All right. We're just there, right? What other church was in Macedonia? Nope. Huh? Philippi was. Berea was in Achaia, I think. But Philippi and Thessalonica were definitely in Macedonia. He, gold star. I got to get some gold stars so I can hand out gold stars. See, you should have got those, guys, because we just went over Thessalonians, right? And I spent all this time talking about Macedonia. Okay, anyways, enough of the gold trip. But he said, when I went into Macedonia, I urged you to remain in Ephesus that you may charge some that they teach no other doctrine. Okay, quick, back. First, second missionary journey. Where was Paul? When he's trying to figure out what to do, what city did he wind up in? Second missionary journey. He went to Lystra, Iconium, went to Iconium, Lystra, Derbia, and Antioch. And then he made his way over to Ephesus. Ephesus. And what happened in Ephesus? He was put in well, he had that whole episode. But what happened in Ephesus when he. No, he wasn't put in prison in Ephesus, excuse me. What happened? Well, what Paul did is exactly what Mr. Fix is doing. He got out his map. And he says, where do I go next? Okay, ocean. Okay, can't go that way. All right. Let's go north. And what did the Holy Spirit say? Let's go south. I've just come from me, so what do I do? The Holy Spirit comes and gives him a dream, and where does he go? All right, so Ephesus is the jumping off point for Macedonia. So evidently, Paul and Timothy were traveling together, they're in Ephesus. Paul's going to go over to Macedonia to check on the churches. And while he was off to Macedonia, he told Timothy to remain in Ephesus and set in order some things. Macedonia, come over and help us. Mm -hmm. And he says, I urged you when I went to Macedonia to remain in Ephesus that you may, now this is important, charge some that they teach no other doctrine. The word charge is a very fascinating word. Paul, you know, he was, he was probably an armchair soldier because that is a military term that was used as a command. It was a command from a military officer to a subordinate. So he told Timothy, I want you to command these people to teach no other doctrine. Now that command, was that a suggestion? No. All right. Timothy was not to can up and say, look, guys, come on. Let's, let's, let's all get along. Let's, let's, let's teach this. No, I had none of that stuff. He was commanded. He was to command them in no uncertain terms with no... No chance on their part to come back and question it to teach no other doctrine. What no other doctrine do you think he's talking about? 
Whatever the false doctrine is. How many true doctrines are there? One, and everything else is bad, all right? So he's told Timothy, I want you to charge him not to teach any other doctrine, i.e., the doctrine which was delivered to me and to you. And you can make a case for what Paul, what does Paul mean by doctrine? Just read the rest of the pastoral epistles and you'll understand what he means by doctrine. It includes the gospel, includes the, the, the word that Christ gave Paul, it includes all of that stuff. All right? And evidently, what was happening in Ephesus? Yeah, false prophets. And I'll tell you, you know, that, that, that Satan does it every single time. Somebody comes in and teaches the truth, and what does Satan come and do? Mm -hmm. He comes right along after the truth is preached, and he gets a few tares to come in and do some stuff, right? And that's a very effective, by the way, thing that he does. And as a person who hears the truth, what are you to do? Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians 5. Confront it, but what do you remember what it says at the end? Research it. Research it, make sure it's right. In other words, hold fast to that which is a good. Abstain from every appearance of evil. You're to check it out. All right? Evidently, some of the Ephesian believers weren't checking it out as well as they should. And you had these people trotting in teaching some other forms of doctrine. What, what forms of doctrine were they? Well, we don't know. It could be anything. Um, we know of one bad form of doctrine, and that is at the end here, it talks about Hymenaeus and Alexander, all right, who said that the um, salvation is our, or the resurrection is already past. All right. Here it is. Yeah, verse. Uh, 18, 19 to 18, all right? So you've got those guys teaching the resurrection has already passed. You've got other ones that are probably teaching some brand or form of Judaism. Whatever it is, I mean, it, it could be anything. We, we don't know. There's nothing specifically said here. There are some hints of some of the doctrines that may be taught. But we don't know exactly what it is. But I want you to, I want you to charge them that they teach no other doctrine. Nor give heed to fables and endless genealogies which cause disputes rather than godly edification which is in faith. Now I want to I spend some time in this next few verses. Okay? Because I think what you do here, what, what's here, this is very important. This gives you a good idea of what kind of stuff to listen to and what kind of stuff to disregard. And the way Paul does it is masterful. He talks about what is the product of the teaching, not what the teaching is. Okay? What the product of the teaching is, not what the teaching is. Okay? Um, if I was able to give you I just came up with this off the top of my head. If I was able to give you a pill and you ate that and became 20 years younger, would you care what was in the pill? Necessarily. 
No, because what happens? The result, all right, proves the value, all right? Paul is saying, what is the result? What is the product of, this is an important word, sound doctrine. Sound is healthy, hygienic. Hugenes is the Greek word. What is, this, what is the result of good doctrinal teaching? The kind of doctrine you want to hear. As opposed to what is the result of the kind of doctrine you want to avoid. Okay? So he starts out with what do you want to avoid? Well, what you want to avoid is fables and endless genealogies. So you've got true doctrine, hygienic doctrine, doctrine that will cause you to grow, and then you've got Twinkies and Coca-Cola and candy bars and popcorn and peanuts and all this other junk. And what kind of food is he telling you to, to eat? The good stuff. Stay away, as I drink my Pepsi here, stay away from the junk food. All right? Now, what are some of the junk foods that you think people eat today? What kind of junk food is he talking about? Spiritual junk food. What? Specifically. Give me some ideas of what, what, what is spiritual junk food? Prosperity. Prosperity gospel is spiritual junk food. You don't need that, right? Because what does it produce? Does it produce godliness? No, it doesn't. Okay, so spiritual junk food is prosperity gospel. That's spiritual junk food. Stay away from it. Don't eat it. What's some other spiritual junk food? Philosophy. Philosophy. You don't need philosophy, right? I don't care what Sartre said. Okay, who cares, right? You care what Voltaire thinks? You really care what Nietzsche means? I don't care what Nietzsche means. The most profound thing I ever read about Nietzsche was on the bathroom stall at Oberlin College. The quotes, God is dead, Nietzsche. And right under that, somebody wrote, Nietzsche is dead, God. <laughs> <You know? laughs> All right? Um, who cares, right? You care about philosophy? You know, you, you, anybody care about philosophy? I'll tell you what, when you turn on the TV, most of the time what you're listening to is Christian philosophy, which is totally irrelevant, has no bearing in reality. Stay away from it. What's some other spiritual junk food? Positive thinking, right? Word faith, junk, that's, that's junk food? That's not even junk food. That's really poison. You know, that'll kill you. You want to stay away from that stuff. Psychology, I'm yeah. sorry. <laughs> Most Christian psychology is spiritual junk food. Spiritual junk food. I remember, I, I still, you know, I haven't psychologically got over this. But many years ago, I was teaching a class in Romans in our, Word of, our Wednesday night Bible study. I was going to teach a theology class, Romans. I had about seven, eight people in it. Some psychologist was teaching birth order. And he had a full class and a waiting list. And the whole idea of birth order is, well, if you're the second child in the family, here's your psychological whatevers. And he was teaching in the church, you know, helping people to deal with the fact that they were the trauma of being born second in the family. And it's like, good freaking night, you know. I'm trying, you know, that's junk food. You don't need that stuff. Because what does it produce? What does it produce here? Disputes. Rather than godly edification. 
disputes. Spiritual junk food, let me tell you something. Spiritual junk food produces disputes. Now let me throw some other ones at you. Legalism. Anybody go to a legalistic church? Yeah. There are churches, there are churches that if a woman walks in and a pair of slacks, she's thrown yeah. out of the church. Yeah. Alright, now now I'm I'm reading this and it says it causes disputes rather than godly edifying. They're sitting around, can you imagine the church is sitting around figuring out what the dress code is? I mean talk about endless disputes and vain jangling and you know just a waste of time. Who cares? Paul is saying you've got a bunch of people there listening to fables and endless genealogies. Those are two kinds of ways to define spiritual junk food. Fables are things. What's a fable? It's a story about a bunch of animals talking and you know, some moral truth or whatever. You know, that's the way that's a lot of most preaching today. It's fables. Not true. Endless genealogies. Some are, think this refers to the old Jewish idea of you know the, the nationality and the Judaism and all of that wrapped up. You know, get away. All that does it causes disputes. It causes people to sit down and argue and fight over Scripture. And and here's the point: over things that don't matter. It's over stuff that doesn't matter. He's not. Paul's not sitting here saying, "All right, look, if somebody's denying the deity of Christ, don't fight about it." That's not what he's talking about here. He's talking about spiritual junk food that people fight and argue and scrap over. He says the kind of food that you want is not to produce disputes, but what rather godly edification. What is edification? To build up, to mature, to make you more Christ-like, to make you more godly. If someone's teaching a course and people are fighting and scrapping and arguing, that's not godly edification. What's the product like? If you, if you attend a church and it turns out a bunch of sanctimonious, self-righteous hypocrites, what, what kind of teaching are that church giving out? Junk food. What kind of people do you want to turn out? Godly people, holy people. People that love the Lord. Because that's what Paul says now. Now the purpose of the commandment, what commandments? No, not the ten. In context, context, context with the commandments. Timothy, the sound doctrine, is all wrapped up into that. The, the purpose of the commandments of God that are derived from sound, hygienic, healthy doctrine is what? Love from a pure heart. Define that. What does that mean? Love from a pure heart. Well, have to do with moral purity? well, pure heart has to do with moral purity, internal holiness. 
All right. Well, let me give you an example. If you walk into a church and Mr. Pharisee looks down on you because you're not dressed appropriately, what is he? Does he have love out of a pure heart? No. No. What would love out of a pure heart do? Come on in. Did Christ tell people to go away because they weren't dressed appropriately? No. Did he kick the prostitute out of the house because she came in and dared touch him? That's the whole point. Well, that's different. I mean, I think I think there, there I think we we all would agree there are certain boundaries. Like, what would you do if somebody came in naked? I mean, there are certain boundaries. All right. Yeah, there's there are certain boundaries, but but the whole point is, you know, within I, I, God's a, God's an awful lot more tolerant than we are of things. He really is. He's an awful lot more tolerant than we are. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, we understand that there are, there are extremes. That's not what we're talking about. That's not what Paul's trying to identify here, the extremes. He's saying generally, when somebody comes into your church, it doesn't matter whether they're rich or whether they're poor, whatever they have, they are to be treated with love from a pure heart. If not, you're not getting the kind of doctrinal teaching you ought to be getting. You're getting spiritual junk food, or you're getting good food and you're just not eating it. I hear kids do that, you know, you give them good food and they don't eat it. So you have to ask yourself, when you study the Bible, when you study whatever it is you study, and you walk away, what's the product that's being done in your heart and life? Are you walking away just a little bit more critical of people, just a little bit more censorious, just a little bit happier about how great and godly and holy and righteous you are and how awfully pathetic everybody else is or that's the way it is in some churches right they sit around and pat themselves on the back of their dress code and how great they are and how godly and holy and righteous this place is somebody told me of a pastor in this area that told his church that he wouldn't let a woman in who wasn't wearing a dress or a Skirt, she wearing pants. He turned away at the door. Now that that's kind of tough since his own granddaughters are married out of wedlock and they come into church any way they want. What kind of food are those people getting? They're getting junk food. They're getting Hostess Twinkies and donuts and pop and sugar and candy. No wonder they're diabetics. They don't know how to eat. And that, and you know that's that's for a teacher too. If, if you all come out of my classes and you go away a little bit more critical, a little bit more crustier, a little bit more you know, grumpier or grouchier, I've failed. I've not done the right thing. I'm not te teaching you the right stuff. I don't want to turn out a bunch of grouchy people. If you go out and loving God a little bit more and wanting to be a little bit more godly and wanting to love each other a little bit better and wanting to be a, a better example, then you've eaten the right stuff. Whatever these teachers were teaching in Ephesus, it wasn't producing that. And Paul is telling Timothy, I want you to teach people the kind of doctrine that produces love from a pure heart. And what did Christ say? Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. 
And then he says, from a good conscience. What's a good conscience? A clear conscience. What is your conscience? It's your inner being. It's not the Holy Spirit. No, it's not your heart. It's not your mind. Good. No. What is the conscience? It's a compass, right? It tells you right from wrong. Now, where does it get its information? Does it? Where does your conscience get its calibration? How's it calibrated? You got it. From what you learned as a believer, your conscience is calibrated by an understanding and comprehension of the Word of God. That which that's what calibrates your conscience. If you ignore what is true and what you know is true, what happens to your conscience? It becomes seared, it becomes hard. I love watching CSI because you see people that kill for some of the dumbest reasons on the planet. Somebody doesn't let them buy them a drink, so they kill them. And it's like, get a life, you know? I mean, of all the things to kill somebody over. But you know what? There are people out there that would kill you as soon as look at you. They have no conscience. There's the, the, the compass is busted and broken. What is Paul saying? I want you to produce, your teaching should produce a good conscience. Now, by definition, what would he mean by good conscience in light of the doctrine? Does anybody have a perfect conscience? No. We're, we're all not... We're all just a few degrees off north, right? Off true north. But as you grow and mature in the Word, what happens to your conscience? It should get closer to true north. Paul is saying, does your teaching produce people who have a good conscience. Now, what does the conscience tell you? First of all, what does your conscience know about you? What's your conscience know about you? Everything. Everything. So not only does it know what you do, it knows what you ought to do, and it knows what you ain't doing, when no one's around looking at you. You can't hide from your conscience. You can walk into church and you can pull the wool over anybody's eyes being a great, wonderful, godly, holy, righteous person, go home and live a double life. Your conscience won't let you get away with that. It's there. It's saying, you know, you're wrong, you're wrong, you're wrong. Now, as a Christian, what should you do with your conscience? Listen to it. Listen to it. If you don't listen to your conscience, what may happen? You may run into a mountain. By the way, that happened. There was an airline that, was, that ran into a mountain. An airplane ran into a mountain. It killed everybody on board. Found a black box, and they replayed it. And there was a 
shrill computer-generated voice that said, pull up, pull up, pull up. And the pilot said, shut up, gringo. And he turned the box off. And seconds later, they plowed into a mountain, and that was the end of all of them. What didn't the pilot do? Didn't listen. You got to listen to your conscience. Don't violate your conscience. If you have a problem, if your conscience is telling you something is wrong when it really is right, what should you do? Violate your conscience or reprogram it? If your conscience tells you that something is wrong when it's right, what should you do? Should you listen to your conscience or reprogram it? You reprogram it, you never ignore it. How do you reprogram your conscience? With the Word of God, the Holy Spirit. Paul is saying here's two, here's two results of good, good doctrine. Number one, pure heart that exhibits love. Two, a good conscience. And then it says a sincere faith, a faith that is unmixed. The real deal. Sincere without wax. You know the old story of the porcelain that they would cover with wax to hide the cracks. And the only way to find out if it was really good porcelain is you take it out in the sun, you hold it up to the light and see if there's any cracks showing through. Paul says this faith that you want is the kind of faith without wax. There isn't any cracks. Nothing is being hidden. Nothing is being covered up. A sincere faith. My favorite psalm, and the one I constantly keep coming back to. Anybody know what it might be? Psalm 15. Psalm 15. This has really been something I've thought about a lot. Psalmist starts out, Lord, who can abide in your tabernacle? Who may dwell in your holy hill? Uh, what person is able to, Father, come into your presence in the tabernacle? Who can come in there? Who can, who can go into your presence? And by the way, who can take a seat in there? So, you know, if you want a modern way of looking at this, who does the Lord like to hang around with? Who does God like to hang with? Okay. Well, he gives some characteristics of that person. He who walk, walks uprightly. What does it mean to walk uprightly? Integrity. Integrity. Works righteousness. And look what it says. Speaks the truth in his heart. Truth about what? Everything. And I think part of speaking the word of truth in your heart is to not let yourself off the hook, right? We like to cut ourselves a lot of slack, make ourselves be better than we really are. Someone who sees themselves the way God sees them, who's not always cutting themselves slack, not always trying to make themselves look better than they really are. Uh, he who does not backbite with his tongue, nor does evil to his neighbor. What does backbite do? To talk. Does God really need you to tell him about the faults of other people? 
You think God wants to come over, sit down with you, and then you give him a whole litany about what's wrong with Seth? He doesn't need that, right? God doesn't need to know about what's wrong with other people. And he doesn't really want to hang around with people that are always talking about everybody else. So if you start talking about other people, is that the kind of person God wants to hang with? No. Nor does evil to his neighbor, someone who does not treat his neighbor in a bad way. And who is your neighbor? Everybody, everybody right? Nor does he take up a reproach against his friend. What does that mean? Somebody comes along and says, hey, let me tell you about a friend of yours, what they're doing, and you take up their side against them. Don't take sides. I've had people that got really mad at me because I wouldn't take their side. I'm not going to fight your fight. If you're mad at that person, well, you go talk. I don't need to be bothered by it. You go talk to them. If you can't find resolution, come back and I'll, I'll go with you. But I'm not going to take up your cause. I'm not going to take up your banner. I'm not going to fight your fight. In whose eyes a vile person is despised. Do you like, here's the point, here's the point. If you want to hang with God, you need to like what he likes. You need to hate what he hates. So what does God hate? Sin. Sin. <laughs> uh, yeah, see? Even Bart gets it, all right? I mean... Took about 50 years. Yeah. God likes to hang around with people that think like you. What kind of person do you like to hang around with? People that think like you. People that have the same common interests that you have. If you get somebody that doesn't have the same, you know, if you like Chinese and they like Italian all the time, you've got problems. You know, where do you go eat? Probably, you know, McDonald's or something like that, you know. But I just. You hang around with people that share some something common. Don't hang around. And that's what God does. God wants to hang around with people that think like he does. He despises evil. You need to despise evil. But he honors those who fear the Lord. You hate the people that God hates. You love the people that God loves. And you swear to your own hurt and does not relent. What do you mean by that? It means when you make promise, what do you do? You keep it. Now, that's a novel concept to most Christians. God has no toleration for people that make promises and break them. Created a culture in America that makes one promise after another and breaks it. How many people really trust the politicians? No. Do you really believe Kerry will do what he says? Do you really believe Bush will do what he says? No. What are they going to do with the Congress and the Senate? Oh, we forgot about that, right? Oh, yeah, right. Okay. You just, you just, you just exhibited more intelligence than most of the electorate out there. The whole point here, folks, is listen. God wants to hang around with people that keep their word. Why? Because what does God do? You know, God has never lied. Now think about that. Not only has He never lied, He cannot lie. He does not put out his money at usury. What does it mean by that? It means to take advantage of people in unfortunate circumstances. That doesn't mean you can't get an appropriate return on your money, but usury was an exorbitant rate that you would charge people. They charge $900 for a flu shot. Yeah. Nor does he take a bribe against the innocent. He can't be bought off. 
Verse 5, basically, look at this way. Verse 5 says you can't buy him off. He won't take up a bribe, and he won't lend out his money to take advantage of other people. He who does these things shall never be moved. From where? No. Context. From where? From God's presence. You want to hang around with God? And I, I find myself a lot lately praying this prayer. And really ask myself, you know, if God showed up, would he want to hang around with me? Or would after five minutes he say, look, I've had enough of this, I'm out of here. I, you know, I've really been thinking, talking to myself. And I'll just... He'd hang with you. Does God want to hang? But see, I know my heart. I've got you all snookered. I know my heart. And I have to ask myself a lot of times, you know, does God, will God be comfortable? Will God be comfortable coming to my house and sitting down having a meal with me? Or in most Christian homes, how much would you have to hide before you, <laughs> oh my gosh, he's showing up. Quick, hide the, you know, whatever. Pure in heart. What, what is the teaching producing? And Paul is saying that godly, holy, righteous, Sound, hygienic doctrine produces pure, a love from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. And if you're not seeing that fruit in the lives of the people being taught, they're eating junk food. They're eating junk food. Some of the false teaching... I was listening, I believe it was to Hank Hanegraaff once, and he said that probably the, the highest percentage of sound doctrine on TBN would be somewhere between 15 and 20 percent. You know, because there's so much nonsense on that. At least yeah. that's what he was saying. There was so much. He, he gave it that much. <laughs> I'd probably be more like 2 to 3 percent, yeah. you know. <laughs> Well, you know, just analyze one of the TV preachers. Pick one. Let's, let's pick a TV preacher. Um, Benny Hinn. Okay, what kind of people does he produce? Do they have a good conscience? By the way, what does he preach? Name and comment, health, wealth, prosperity. Are those godly people? Their idea of godliness is driving around in white Lincoln. With lots of money. If you don't have enough money, you just don't have enough faith. The people with faith, they're the ones driving the big cars and have the nice houses. Wasn't it Bill Bright who used to just drive a regular? I mean, he... Bill Bright drove a Lincoln, but it was somebody. It was grand. It was donated to the ministry for him. Yeah. He had a person, and he he he. Uh, every year he would divulge his tax return. He made twenty thousand dollars a year. When this whole big scandal broke, you know, the, the, the Baker scandal, all the preachers, a lot of them divulged their, their um, 1040s. And the, the, Bill Bright's 1040 was the lowest of anybody. It was like, he made like $20,000 a year. And you say, well, wait a minute, he drives around a Lincoln. Yeah, because somebody in the ministry donated that Lincoln for him to drive. But he, it wasn't his, you know. Folks, you know, what's being produced? 
How many degrees off from two north? <clears throat> I mean, this guy tolerates most of us are born again Christians. I mean, I see such a, a yeah. range there. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I met with a Sunday school teacher who left his wife, and he said, uh, I'm much happier now, and therefore I know it must be from God, God's will. He ate local weed. Not in my church, he wouldn't. Not in my church, he wouldn't if I had anything to say about it. So, I mean, but this is his belief, which is well, I mean, I mean, I mean, like Bart says. So, well, that's an old brainer. You know, you leave your wife and go off. You know, no. He can think anything he wants. He can think anything he wants. The point is, you know, look, folks, you don't need to be a Bible scholar to understand that leaving your wife is not a godly thing to do. I don't care if he's happier. It's irrelevant. I don't care. God, notice what it says here. The, the end of good doctrine is not happy people. I don't see happy people here. Maybe, maybe the end of a good, good teaching is miserable people that see just how bad they are and, and come to God. I mean, that's... Yes, people, I mean, many of us walk around with a log in our eye in some area. You know, mm -hmm. mine might be different. And the point is, when you find a log in your eye, what's your response? What should your response be? Pull it out. Help me get it out. I want to see straight. This is this is the ideal here, you know. Now, of course, look, we can all eat good, wholesome food, but you know, how many people today had a piece of junk food? Well, junk food. You look sort of healthy, you know. You. So I mean, it goes back, you know. If all you do is eat junk food, you're gonna be bad. You know, maybe. I'm trying to think of how, how to put it here. Paul is saying. You've got to look at the kind of teaching you get because it will show you what is produced. All right? And if you've got teaching that would allow it, if I was the pastor of a church and I had a Sunday school teacher that felt it was God's will that he leave his wife, run off with somebody else, I don't know if he did or not, run off with somebody else, and he's happier, I'm going to go home and I'm going to, I'm going to worry about whether I'm even preaching the Bible or not. Because obviously my teaching is not producing godliness, it's producing a, a, an idiot that thinks he knows the truth. In fact, Paul talks about them. Verse 6, from which some, having strayed, have turned aside to idle talk. What's idle talk? Gossip. Well, it could be gossip, but what else could it be here? It's irrelevant talking. It's irrelevant. You know, you know a good example of this? You ever go to a Bible study where somebody says, uh, what's this verse mean to you? And everybody goes around and they talk about what the verse means to them, right? And nobody knows what it means, right? Just what does it mean to you? I don't care what it means to you. I really don't. I, I don't want to know what it means. And there are rules that we can use to find out what it means. It's not impossible to determine the meaning of a text. I don't care what it means to you. I want to know what it means. And some have turned straight away from what? Well, straight away from sound doctrine, they've gone away from it 
and they've turned to idle talk. What's that? That's just talk that doesn't get anywhere. You know, you sit around and you talk about theories, you talk about philosophies, psychologies, whatever, but you're not talking about the Word of God. It's just whatever it is you want to talk about. And if you turn around to idle talk, notice what their character is like. Desiring to be teachers of the law, understanding neither what they say nor the things whereof they affirm. Now that's that guy that wants to be the Sunday school teacher. He doesn't know what he's teaching. You want to be a Sunday school teacher and you want to tell me it's all right for you to leave your wife and go marry somebody else or just leave her because you're happier without her? That's not godly teaching. That's, that's silliness. That's, that's stupidity. And if you can look yourself in the mirror and say that that's godliness, you've got a cracked block somewhere. Something's wrong here. By the way, I've run into these people. I had a friend of mine, he liked to talk. And he wanted to sit around. He, 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 I remember one time he told somebody that one of the things he missed with me is us sitting around talking about the you know, spiritual things. And he said he missed that. Well, if you looked at his life, it was a total shipwreck. He's the same guy that was witnessing to his lawyer. All right, I've told you about his life was a total chaos. He was living in sin. And he wanted to be a teacher. He didn't know what he was talking about or what he should say. He, he, they, he wanted to be a teacher. There are those that want to be teachers. They don't know what they're talking about. Now, how do you evaluate a teacher? No. How do you evaluate a teacher of the Word? How do you evaluate my teaching? If somebody, if, if Richard Fisher walked in and said, Alan, would you go out in the hallway? And he said, okay, evaluate. What, what, what things would you use to evaluate my teaching? What, what things would... Do I know what the Bible says? And am I saying what it says, right? If I'm saying something and it's saying something else... It's got to line up, right? So that's how you evaluate. And then the other thing, you, how else would you evaluate it? If you're producing godly fruit in other people. If you're not, you're not teaching the right thing. See, that's the, that's the cool thing about the Word of God. I don't have to produce food in, fruit in you. I just got to teach the truth of the Word of God, and it does, the, it does it for me, right? I don't have to worry about that. I just teach what the Bible says, and then it's up to the Holy Spirit to produce the fruit, and He will. Because it's not my word, it's His word. If all you do is, if you got somebody up here who wants to just pontificate, and I've run into those, you know, they love, oh boy, they love to raise their hand and pontificate, you know, and talk for 20 minutes. You don't even know what they're talking about, you know, you just like to hear themselves talk. You want to pass themselves off some godly, wonderful, holy, righteous, you know, scholar of the scripture. They don't know what they're even talking about. And whenever you talk about theology, their eyes just glaze over and they don't even know what you're saying. So what if your Sunday school teacher is like that? The lesson starts out good and then when it gets, after he puts his spin all over it, you don't know if you heard. Do I give you a headache? No. Okay, good. Now I want to make sure I don't give you a headache. Well, you have to go back and evaluate the teaching. Is it sound doctrine? Is it sound? 
And there are some people, you know, they dive into a verse and they wander all over the place. You have no idea where they went, you know. How do you get over here? <clears throat> you know, Paul, Paul is saying you want to hang around good, sound doctrine because it will produce godly, righteous, holy people. And some didn't want to do that. And in this Ephesian church, there were some that wanted to be the teachers. They wanted to be the, te the leaders. And they didn't know what they were talking about. And remember what James says, do not be anxious to be many teachers because you get double judgment. You're doubly responsible for what you say. And that's why, be honest, folks, I'd just rather stick with what the Word of God says and I can't really screw it up. If I come up here and tell you my opinions, my ideas... That's not going to help you out any. I might be enjoyable, I might be funny, I might get people laughing in that, but it ain't going to do anything. I remember talking to a gal that went to a certain church on the North Coast for 10 years. She was there 10 years in this church. We sat down and played Bible trivia. She didn't know who David was. She didn't know who Aaron was. No idea. None. I said, well, how long have you been going to that certain church on the North Coast? And she says, uh, 10 years. I'm thinking, what do they teach you? Now, I understand, you know, you may not be a Bible scholar, but if you don't know who David is, that's bad. I mean, that's really bad. You know, we quit playing, we were trying to play Bible trivia, and we gave up because she didn't know any answers to any of the questions. We got out the kids' ones, and she couldn't get any of those right. And I'm thinking, you've been going to church for 10 years and you don't know basic, 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 basic stuff? You're in the 12th grade and you don't know what the colors are yet? I don't know, but she... Yeah. But the whole point is, you, you people here in this, in this group are rare and that you actually want to know what the Bible says. You know how many people you run into that don't care. They go to church or they're all, you know, the pastor said some good words. What did he preach on? I, I don't know, the platform or the yeah. pulpit or something. I don't know what he said. Yeah. Folks, get with it. Sound teaching produces godly people. Bad teaching, spiritual junk food, produces endless genealogy, vain jangling, people who want to be the teachers but don't know what they're talking about. Verse 8, for we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. What is the law here? How did Paul use the law? No? No? So in, in, in what is law? It's everything God's commanded. The Word of God. We know that the law, the Word of God, what God gave, is good if one uses it how? Properly. You want, yeah, you got to use the Word of God correctly for it to be good. Knowing this, that the law is not made for a righteous person, but for the lawless and insubordinate, for the ungodly sinners, the unholy, the profane, the murders of fathers, the murders of mothers, manslayers, fornicators, fornicators, sodomites, kidnappers, liars, and perjurers, and if there's any other thing that's contrary to sound doctrine. What's he equating sound doctrine with? He starts out with the law, 
is for all these people who do things that are contrary to sound doctrine. Okay. If A produces B and C is at the end, A and C are the same, right? Got to think about it, logically. He's saying the law is for all these people who do things contrary to God's law, and he replaces sound doctrine. The law is for people who are not righteous. The commandments. He says uh, the law needs to be brought against those who do evil things. What, what will it produce for, against those who do evil things? What should the law of God produce ultimately? A changed life. So if these people are still, if they come to your teaching, they walk out and they're still a sodomite, if they're still a fornicator, if they're still a liar, if they're still a murderer, did you give them the right law or the bad law? You could have given the right law and they ignored it, or you gave them the wrong stuff. According to the glorious gospel of the blessed God, which is committed to my trust, the sound doctrine, the teaching that Paul had, he said, it was committed to my trust. That's a fascinating word. It's a banking term, which means to put something on a deposit. If I walk into the bank and I give them $1,000 for a CD or whatever it is, I'm entrusting them with my money. And that means that someday I should be able to go back in and claim that money. All right? What Paul is saying is God is coming along and he's giving you something. What's he giving you? What's God given you? What's God entrusted to every one of us in here? The gospel, which includes... By the way, gospel here, is that the four spiritual laws? What is it? The good news about everything. The sound doctrine. Paul's equating the law, sound doctrine, and good news. He's equating those terms to, to a large extent, saying that this was entrusted to me. So if something is entrusted to you, how should you care for it? Very carefully. Stop and think about that. God's trusted you to take care of his truth. So if you are a right teacher of the law, if you're a right student, what, what should your attitude be towards the truth? You don't distort it. You treat it with great value, great respect. Because it's not, here's the a, here's a point, the origin of the truth, is it you or God? God? God's entrusting you with, you're not coming up with the truth. It's God's truth. And I remember reading some books by a well-known psychologist who says, you know, I know the Bible doesn't teach us, but this is my experience. And then he blathered on for a bunch of stuff. Well, you know what, I don't care what he, you know, I really don't care. That's blather, right? Blah, 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 blah. I don't care what he says, because he's saying, basically, this isn't in the Bible, but it's true anyways. No, it's not. Just because you think it is. 
that was his experience. Well, that's good, fine, dandy for you, but you know what? I don't, I'm not going to take your experience over the Word of God, or I'm not going to augment the Word of God with your experience. The Word of God is true. What's it say? Let God be true and every man a liar. His Word is true. Everything else you don't need. And that's why, you know, going back to philosophy, you need to learn philosophy as a Christian? No. Because if it's right, it agrees with the Bible. If it's wrong, it doesn't. So who cares, right? Just know what the Bible says. That's the most important thing. And Paul is saying, God committed this truth, this valuable commodity to me. Of all the people in the world, he committed it to me. I can't believe it. Because it goes on in verse 12, And I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has enabled me because he counted me faithful putting me into the ministry. Paul was overwhelmed with awe that God would of all the people choose him and give him this truth to keep. He couldn't believe it. He counted me faithful. That's, that's it. And, you know, all of us in here need to say, why me? Not why me in the negative sense, but why me in the positive sense? Why of all the people in the world did God ever decide to show any kind of grace and favor to me? Paul said he put me in the ministry. So how did Paul treat his ministry? He treated it as a job. You know, there are people today that will come and give you their testimony for $5,000. Are they in the ministry? No, they're not. They're in a job. Okay? They're not in the ministry. If they were in the ministry, they'd come and do it for free, right? Paul did not decide what town to build a church in based on the demographics of the wealthy there and how much he could milk them. It was irrelevant to him. He wasn't there for the money. He was there for the ministry. And that's what God has done. God has given all of us in here, folks. God has given us the truth. How, how are you treating it? How are you treating it? We have to ask ourselves, how do we treat the truth? Is it ho-hum? Or does it produce awe in us? Because he said, what, verse 13, although I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent man. Those are all interesting words. Greek word for insolent man can be violent and aggressor. Paul says, I was, think about this. You, you want to, here's a word picture. Think about Saddam Hussein walking up to kill a bunch of people. God shows up to him, pulls him into the ministry, and gives him the truth. That's what Paul's trying to get at here. What kind of man was he? He was a blasphemer, persecutor, and an injurious man. He was violently aggressive. Paul says, you know, if I'd have picked somebody, it certainly wouldn't have been me. He was, Paul was in shock. He was in awe. He, he, to the end of his days, he never did understand why in the world would God ever choose of all the people me. And the only thing he could think of is that he wanted to. And the only thing Paul could do in response was, 
I got to fulfill my ministry. I, I got I to gotta watch this truth. I got to make sure that I take care of it. Which means that when we disseminate the truth, when we talk about the truth, it's important to know what we're talking about. We don't want to be one of these guys that want to be the teacher of the law and you don't know anything. If you're going to teach the Word of God, at least know what it is you're saying. Don't make it up. Paul says it's a divine trust. And he said, I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. I didn't believe God, and I did it ignorantly. And because of that, God showed me mercy. Why, I will never know, because he didn't owe it to me. And the grace of our Lord was exceedingly abundant with faith and love, which are in Christ Jesus. Faithful and love for what? For me. Given me this word, given me this gospel to preach it, to teach it, to have it. Because verse 15, this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance. It's one of the first of the five. What this is referring to is a common saying in the church. Many Bible scholars say this is one of the five, one of the common sayings. Everybody knew this. Once saved, I see everybody knows that, right? I don't need to, you just know that. This is one of, that's what this is. This is a faithful saying. Everybody knows this. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. Why did Christ come into the world? To, what did he come into the world for? Save sinners. I've come to seek and to save that which is lost, Mark 10, 16. And Paul says, you know what? Let me tell you what it is. You take all the sinners and you line them up from the least to the greatest. Who's at the head of the line? I'm at the head of the line. Protoss, first in line. Paul said he came in the world to save me, sinners, of whom I am number one. See, most Christians think God got a good deal when they save them. Lord, isn't it wonderful? I'm in your kingdom. Oh, I bet you were so happy when I responded. No, I'll tell you what. God doesn't need you. He doesn't need me. He doesn't need anybody. It's all of grace. Paul says, you line them all up. The head of the line, I'm standing right there. And God chose me. However, for this reason I obtained mercy that in me first Jesus Christ might show all suffering as a pattern to those who are going to believe on him for everlasting life. This is what Paul is saying here. He's saying, you know what? You know why Paul chose me? You know why God chose me? This is Paul's thinking. Paul, why did God choose you? Well, God chose me because if he could save me, he could save anybody. That's, that's what he's saying. If God could save me, the worst, the, the, the number one, if God can save the worst sinner of humankind, what about all the lesser sinners of humankind? That's no problem either, right? Paul's saying that he might first show me all long suffering as a pattern, as an example to all of those who are going to believe on him. For everlasting life. If God can save me, He can save anyone. Seems like many passages in the Bible that talk about God's motive, talk about He did this or that or the other thing to glorify His name. Yep. That's why God does anything. And again, what does it mean to glorify His name? What's that mean? To draw attention to God. God is a loving God, right? So, how does God exhibit love?
How does he exhibit it? Mercy. Yeah. If we were all perfect, if we'd never sinned, if humanity had never fallen, we're all sitting around heaven, God says, I'm God of love, we'd all look at each other like, huh? What do you mean? Well, that goes along with my mercy. Well, what's that? I don't know what you're talking about. What mercy? What's mercy? Mercy. Well, that's for the sinner. Sinner? What's a sinner? We... But how many people were with Paul when, when he was persecuting Christians who saw this? And then why aren't they with him saying, well, I'm here? Because God did not show up to them. He showed up to... Now, if there's anything just to make you a Calvinist, that should. God showed up to Paul on the road to Damascus. He did not show up to all the guys on the road to Damascus because what did they do? They heard a voice, but they didn't see anything, right? Paul saw something, right? And you say, well, that's not fair for God to show up to Paul and not to somebody else. Look, it was, you know, if you talk about fair, God shouldn't have showed up to any of them, right? He should have just hit them off a bolt of lightning and that would be the end of them, you know. Little smoking craters on the road to Damascus, all of them right there, you know. He showed up to Paul. He, he, Paul said, I, I, I don't know why. And I think what Paul is trying to do in his own mind is saying, well, maybe one of the reasons God showed up to me of all of the people is that if he could save me, he could save anybody. If God could show grace to me, boy, anybody else is an easy one. Because I was the chief among sinners. And he says, now to the king, eternal, immortal, invisible, to God who alone is wise, be honor and glory forever. And ever. he just gives God some praise. The immortal king, invisible. God is invisible. You can't see him. God is spirit. Spirit is invisible. Christ is visible, right? But God is invisible. And he's eternal. And we could spend you know, a week talking about all these different qualities you find in God here. But one of them here, God who alone is wise. You know, if God is wise, everybody else isn't. So whatever God does is, by definition, the wise and right thing. By definition. It's not wise because God does it. Excuse me. It's not, God doesn't do it because it's wise. It's wise because he does it. I always get that backwards. Right? Paul's saying, let's give him honor, glory, forever. Amen. Um, let's take our break there and pick up verse 18 after our break here. Let's take 15 minutes. Thank you for listening. This podcast was made in part with creative consulting and production assistance by Third Mass Studio. For your production needs, send an email to thirdmassstudio at gmail.com. For other lectures in this series and more biblical media resources, visit theopenword.org.